0: following podcast is for informational purposes only. The contents of this podcast do not constitute tax, legal, or investment advice. Take responsibility
1: for your own decisions, consult with the proper professionals, and do your own research.
0: I, I think, you know, fast forward five years, and the graph is going to be a de facto component of every application's Web3 technology stack.
1: Reciprocal Ventures, a venture capital firm with deep expertise in investing in crypto and fintech. On February 17th, Reciprocal Ventures, along with several other industry leading investment firms, including MultiCoin Capital, who was recently featured on this podcast, caught the attention of the entire Web3 space after announcing the launch of a $205 million fund that will invest in projects in and around the Graph ecosystem. During our discussion, Craig talks about his background, including time working at Morgan Stanley, his journey into entrepreneurship, and then how he found himself working at a venture capital firm with a focus on investing in and building Web3. Craig also shares the incredible background on how Reciprocal Ventures came to know about the graph and the solution it provides, along with how Craig envisions the graph being a de facto part of the Web3 stack. I began the conversation by asking Craig about the 205 million dollar investment fund and what he can share about the investment strategy.
0: You know, it was kind of a no-brainer for us. You know, when we were discussing the initiative with with other funds, you know, that we've co-invested with, and, and I think you know, it's a, it's a great idea. It's so much of the the alpha that we as venture investors, I think, especially in Web three, exists right in our you know, in our portfolios. You know, right in front of our Right in front of our eyes, uh, and I think some of the best founder intros, you know, that we we get, we expect to come from founders that we've worked with, you know, for years, have built a reputation with, you know, where we've showed them exactly, you know, how much value we can add to their project, you know, over the you know the lifetime of the project. Uh, that net promoter score, when it's passed on to new founders. It just makes the the new relationship building process so seamless and, and easy, and, and they get what we do, we get what they do, and we we kind of have an immediate level of trust with one another. So for us, we saw this as as a win win because we can continue supporting an existing portfolio company. Uh, it also you know gives us first look at, at new projects that are being built on and around the graph. And I'm actually, I'm proud to say, uh, since the announcement, we've already closed our first investment in our new project building on the graph.
1: So for listeners that may not be totally familiar with the world of finance and venture capital and, and fund creation, this basically was what? Three partners coming together, pooling funds together, and then saying, we're going to invest this over time in projects working in the graph. Do I have that right?
0: Yeah, I think it was a few more than that. I think it, it, it was more like six or seven total partners. But uh, but yeah, that that's exactly the the spirit of the arrangement. And um, you know, I think we've all been long term supporters of, of the graph and really want to see it succeed. And you know, I think we're also big believers in you know the fact that the graph is an ecosystem. Right? It's a network. It's a protocol, but it also requires an ecosystem to be built around it. And you know, this is this is a great way to do that.
1: Is there a time horizon tied to this fund and the deployment of this investment?
0: No. Um, for us, you know, it, everything we do is long-term. We're not a hedge fund. We, you know, we aren't trading actively you know, in the markets. Everything we do is kind of long-dated as it would be with traditional venture. And for you know, anyone that's not familiar, traditional venture funds are 10-year funds with the ability to extend two years to 12 years, if need be. So you know, sometimes we we actually tell founders that just so you know, we're a traditional venture fund, we're a ten year fund with two year extension, because with the shorter times to liquidity that we've seen in crypto with you know tokens and token economics, fund lives have actually been shortened. And I think in some cases that's great for investors and their investors, not as great for for projects, right? Who have five to ten year time horizons to to reach their full value and potential.
1: Well, Craig, congratulations to you. And of course, the Reciprocal Ventures team, along with all the other partners that participated in this fund. It's really exciting to see so much investment going into the graph ecosystem. And I'll be thrilled to kind of watch this initiative grow over time. Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit and go back to kind of first principles. What can you share with us about who and what Reciprocal Ventures is?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Reciprocal, you know, we're an early stage venture capital firm. We've been focused on crypto basically from the beginning, from early 2017 when we launched Fund One. You know, but what's changed over time is, is that we've really ramped up our investing in crypto pretty significantly. Where I'd say when we first started, you know, we were focused probably 25% on crypto, Web3, about 75% on fintech. And we've, really, we've flipped the equation. So now we're we're deploying roughly 75% of our capital into web3 crypto and 25% into fintech. The way we see it is very much that crypto is is kind of eating fintech right now and a lot of the adjacent businesses are being pulled into web3, you know, by the inertia of of what's going on there, all the all the development, innovation. So, yeah, that's driven us to you know, take a hard look at, at where we're deploying capital and make the shift to almost exclusively focusing on crypto and crypto tangential businesses.
1: So that flip in the ratio of investment is very interesting to me, and it, it speaks to the growth potential for crypto and Web3. But there's still a lot of debate about what Web3 truly is and the potential impact it could have in the world. How do you think through that when you talk with investors or maybe just friends and family? what Web3 is and, and the impact it could have?
0: It's such a good question. And it's something we've been, we've been contemplating for you know, going on five years now. And it's, it, it's actually funny that we're talking about this here on this podcast, because the first time I ever heard the term Web3 was from the graph. was was from even in Brandon in 2018 when we first met. And originally, so we kind of have these three core thesis buckets that we invest in. We have DeFi primitives. Chain-agnostic Web three protocols, and then any application that has unique features derived from DeFi or Web three. So we created that Web three bucket almost because of the conversations that we had with the graph in early mid 2018, where you know Unive and Brandon and Yanis envisioned rearchitecting the web to be anti-fragile, right, and using incentives to decentralize the back end of the service layer and deliver these services with a decentralized network of operators right and that possibility just the the thought of that really uh, really gripped me at the time when we when we first met the graph there were plenty of service providers who were trying to do this in a centralized way and then there were a lot of applications and protocols in web3 that were were kind of doing what the graph was in an ad hoc bespoke way internally on their own dev teams or their DevOps teams. So, you know, a lot of people when they first discovered the graph, I think wanted to push them in the direction of be a SaaS company. You could be a massive SaaS company. And it was really to their credit, they stuck to their guns and, and fended off a lot of that feedback and said, no, we think there's a better model. We think there's a, a better way to deliver this service via you know, a decentralized marketplace of indexers and a protocol between them and the, and the users on the client side. And um, you know, with that, we can gain anti-fragility. We can remove platform risk. We can create data composability with subgraphs. We can do all these really cool, unique things. So when, when I think of Web3, I tend to think of unbundling the cloud stack and using some of these really novel mechanisms that Yaniv and Brandon and Giannis have have pioneered in order to deliver specific services from big cloud in an anti-fragile way that removes platform risk and creates data composability. So those are the things that I think about with Web3. I think the way the market is defining it right now is that anything that settles down to a, a blockchain at some point is classified as web three. And I think that's a, that's, that's fair, right? I think it's easier for people to, to think about, well, we had web one, right? You know, we had web two with the social layer, right? More flexible data structures and databases and all these applications. And we had mobile built on web two. And now we have web three. And web three has these unique features and, and principles comparatively to web two. So I think it's an easy uh, dichotomy for people to to understand or grasp.
1: So as someone who invests in Web3 and is always looking for opportunities in this space, where do you think we are in the evolution or adoption of Web3 in the world? In terms of
0: adoption, we're wildly early. <laughs> uh, you know, I think Ethereum has... 600,000 daily active users. Solana, I think, has 300,000 daily active users. You know, Polygon and some other Layer 2s are probably somewhere, you know, in that range as well. So we're still incredibly early, you know, in terms of real daily active use of the technology. You know, I think at the protocol level, there's still a ton of, of wood to chop there, a lot of work to be done. You know, we're still talking about building out some of the foundational primitives of a web three technology stack. You know, it doesn't fully exist. You can't, you can't completely develop your application on web three rails. There are still primitives being developed and still development that, that needs to be researched in order to do that. I think one of the really cool things, and this almost moves the goalposts further away is that the number of use cases and the breadth of you know, Web3 has, has expanded significantly with the adoption of things like new token standards with NFTs and their rise to prominence over the last year. Kind of crazy that that's happened in, in just the last year, but it really has. And, and that's unlocked just amazing new opportunities like the metaverse, gaming on chain with NFT in game assets. New gaming models like play to earn, you know, and every time one Web3 primitive, like a layer one or, or the graph or something, is used to open up a new sector or new genre of game, right? We're we're increasing the the TAM of Web3 as a whole, as a movement. And again, we're we're moving the goalposts back a little bit, probably because it's just going to take longer to build all of this out. But what's really interesting, and, and we've seen this with you know, NFT, metaverse gaming, you know, they've really been fantastic drivers for sticky user adoption. You know, one thing we've looked at recently is like for all the volatility in asset prices in, you know, directional assets, uh, you know, NFT activity has held up pretty well. Like volumes have been pretty strong. Transactions have been pretty strong. I'm not going to speak to asset value in the NFT <laughs> space, but in terms of stickiness, uh, You know, NFTs have really managed to keep a captive, active audience, which is great long-term for the space.
1: This has become somewhat of a standard question I ask in the podcast, but I like to ask it just because I think it frames for listeners a lot of the discussion around Web3. And the question is, in your opinion, do you think Web3 is an experiment? We're just kind of waiting to see what comes of it, or is it an inevitability, an evolution away from Web2?
0: You know, I think if you asked me this question a year ago, I would have given you a very different answer than today. Today it very much feels like an inevitability that that web3 will be successful, that these protocols will get critical mass and be used if if they're designed properly and you know the go to market is executed right and the incentives you know line all the parties involved. There's certainly going to be winners and losers, don't get me wrong. But as a as a sector, as a as an industry, I believe now more than ever that that Web3 is inevitably going to have critical mass and adoption across industries. I think, you know, just listening to Q4 earnings calls, right, for you know, major conglomerates, any basically any company that owns intellectual property right now, it has a metaverse or NFT initiative. So that just says to me that, and and those are also net new participants in the ecosystem. Right. I think a year ago, and and even back to you know two, three years ago, we've been hearing on earnings calls and in transcripts, you know, from the banks, right? From the custodians, from the exchanges, from these financial participants in traditional markets that they're experimenting with Web3, experimenting with crypto assets, figuring out how they could get involved, most likely because their clients wanted to touch those assets. Right. So they're getting a lot of a lot of questions. Now, you know, these are net new major market participants coming in and, and, and experimenting with the technology for their own top line, for their own monetization purposes. You know, I, I doubt Disney has fans knocking on their door asking for uh, Magic Kingdom in the metaverse, but I'm, I guarantee you they're looking at it as a way to continue to monetize their, their parks business 24 7, 365. With probably, you know, 90% margins. So they're looking at web three as this massive opportunity to take this IP that's either static, you know, on a shelf hidden away somewhere, or it's it's relying on a physical in-person experience in a park. Um, and they're trying to figure out how they can monetize it all the time. And that's completely novel, right? That's a net new development that's happened in the last year. And, you know, I don't think it'll be the, the last time that we hear about. A net new innovative trend bringing major corporations into Web3.
1: Are there any mileposts you're watching personally as you contemplate the greater adoption of Web3 throughout the world? Are there certain things that you're saying, you know, when this happens, that's a signal that we've advanced? And then when this happens, you know, another step forward?
0: <laughs> it's such a good question. And, you know, mind you, we look at incredibly early stage companies. We're looking at Seed, in some cases, pre seed stage companies, series A companies. I think we're more than anything trying to figure out where the puck is going in kind of Web3 itself. And so, one of the things we watch very actively is is developers, uh, developer traction. You know, where are they going to build? You know, what are they building on? What tools are they choosing? What protocols are they integrating with? This, again, is another reason why it made so much sense to, to put together the you know, ecosystem fund initiative with the graph because we're, we're kind of doing this anyway, right? You know, we're looking at all the grantees who are receiving capital from, from the graph. You know, we do the same thing with our other portfolio companies. We do it with all the layer ones. And you know, we're, we're monitoring that flow of funds or we're monitoring that engineering work in real time mm-hmm. to understand thematically what are people working on Um, And then what are they using to work on those those experiments?
1: Well, I love that answer about developer traction. It's something that I personally am watching and I'm curious about. And a lot is made of this online, on Twitter, about people in Web2, you know, at big technology firms making the move into Web3, recruiting numbers going up, all of this stuff. And I just would be curious if you have a sense for how true that is. Is there a migration out of Web2 and Web3? Are developers reorienting their builds more towards web three. What are you seeing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's undeniable that that's happening as we speak. You know, I can't, I can't necessarily point you to a a quantitative source to, to track this other than some of the analyses that have been done on GitHub repositories and commits across various chains and protocols. But I can tell you, you know, if you, If you go to hacker houses for the various ecosystems, like we're very involved in the Solana ecosystem. So if you go to a Solana hacker house, the percentage of people who have quit their job at name that Fang company or, you know, top tier SaaS company, right? And they're hacking around in crypto. If you go to the ETH global events, same thing, the major conferences, same thing. And it's Both engineers and business talent. It's not just one or the other. So that, that's been really inspiring over the, over the last year. And it's, it's almost been over, overwhelming to be honest, because I think the amount of traction in the space has been underestimated for a while, partly because of COVID and our inability to get in person and meet up. You know, I think ETH Denver is a great example of this, you know, where so many people ended up showing up to just see the tech, see the community, meet each other. And like the ecosystem almost wasn't ready for it, you know? So, uh, I think that's, that's just a fantastic sign. People from my past, right. In, in traditional finance from, from childhood and growing up and, and from web two where, you know, in SAS where I used to work are are coming into to web three and droves and reaching out and asking how they can get involved. So, you know, the more, the more I see that, you know, the more inspired I get and, and real, I feel like that that transition of talent is becoming. The GRTIQ podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the graph foundation.
1: The graph grounds program provides support for protocol infrastructure, tooling, gaps, Subgraphs and community building efforts. Learn more at the graph.foundation. That's the graph.foundation. Hi, this is GRTIQ. Every week, the GRTIQ podcast shines a light on the people working to build the graph in Web3. The stories shared on this podcast not only inspire and educate, but when joined together, they create the narrative that's driving Web3 what it is, why it matters, and how you can get more involved. This podcast is fueled by the support of listeners like you. So if you've been impacted by something you've heard by one of the guests, then please take a moment and help spread the word. Share your favorite episodes on social media, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Or simply share what you heard with a friend or family member. We're early. There's room for everybody. So don't just listen to the stories shared on this podcast, but go write your own and make a contribution that can change the world. So Craig, I want to ask you a lot more about your background and kind of how you first got involved in crypto and drawn into the space. Before we leave this topic of Web3, I want to get your opinion on something that I think is often framed as a criticism of Web3, and that is the participation of venture capital firms in the space. So groups like, you know, not picking on reciprocal ventures, but there's a whole list of venture capital firms participating and investing in Web3. And I guess the argument goes, if VCs are participating, then it's probably not decentralized Or it's centralized behind the scenes. Do you have an opinion or a way that you would typically answer a criticism like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the way I would answer that is is that we're here for a reason. I think to start, you know, we specialize in providing risk capital. So we're taking extreme amounts of risk in investing in some of these highly experimental, very early stage, you know, protocols and applications and we're designed and equipped as a firm to take that risk. Additionally, we do re- we are really here to help breathe life into this into this industry. So for Reciprocal, you know I can't speak for any other firms, but I know for us, you know over the last 5 years we've really tried to to specifically engineer our value propositions as a firm towards web3 to improve the likelihood of success of every company that we invest in. Um, And I think the graph has actually been a a great case study in how we've done that and how we've worked together as the industry has evolved to build those value adds. You know, on the the decentralization front, I think best practices and network and token economic design are still being refined. But I think we are getting down to you know, a set of best practices where investors shouldn't own more than you know a certain percent of a network. And I think top founders you know know that and do their best to try and abide by those rules, so that the institutional investors aren't oversaturated in the network and the community owns the vast majority of of the tokens. That's definitely guidance that we provide. We actually have a, a table of comps. Of, you know, 50 plus projects that we've, we've tracked over the last couple of years and, you know, where their token distribution was in terms of TGE versus early stage and how that's set them up for success or failure long term in the public markets. Uh, and we use that as a tool to advise our, our portfolio companies. So, you know, don't have above X percent investors. This is kind of the target for the community. This is the target for you know, future employees for the foundation, so on and so forth. So, yeah. So, you know, I think the other note that I would make too is we're, we're backed by people, right? So we're, we're an organization that has investors, right? And, you know, at a certain point in time, we're, we're shepherding their assets right now. And, you know, we invest their capital into these protocols, you know, but at a certain point in time in the future, we could theoretically distribute these assets to them and further decentralize those assets amongst our own investors, creating even more decentralization of, of the protocol.
1: Well, Craig, I appreciate you answering that question. I want to now turn a little bit more towards you and ask about your background. So, what can you share with us about your professional and educational background?
0: Uh, so, education wise, went to college at a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania called Lafayette College, kind of where I, I got my start with entrepreneurialism and discovered my, my passion for startups. I actually uh, helped co-found a, a startup while I was there in the mobile ticketing space. So that was, that was how I fell in love with entrepreneurship.
1: <laughs> well, it's an interesting personality or character type that's drawn to entrepreneurship because so many businesses fail. The startup environment is high risk and also a lot of stress so how is it then that you explain your draw to something that, you know, maybe most people would view as something they want to avoid?
0: I don't know. You know, I think it's a it's a combination of the uh, the autonomy, uh, the energy and the upside of entrepreneurship. To, if I was going to sum it up in three words, the idea of of really, you know, having the freedom and flexibility to chase something that you're passionate about. I graduated college Basically, during the the global financial crisis, or immediately after some of the the darkest days of the global financial crisis, and there weren't too many places hiring. Being an entrepreneur really seemed like a, a high, abnormally high risk endeavor at the time, I should say. So I, you know, I kind of did the safe thing and and I went and and joined a bank. I got a job offer from Morgan Stanley, but I, I wanted to, you know, do something do something different. I wanted to go back to building. I had the, that entrepreneurial itch, which so many people you know, describe. I, I really felt it.
1: So after you left Morgan Stanley, it sounds like you found yourself in an entrepreneurial journey here. Where did you land?
0: I did. So I, I went to a company called Fiscal Note. At the time, it was a seed stage AI company. They had come up with a pretty innovative algorithm that could predict what was going to happen in legislation. And they wanted to to experiment with that in financial markets and also in financial institutions. You know, they, they really didn't have much in terms of customer traction. So they wanted me to join at first to help you know, both on the product side with financial market and financial institution customers and, and test if there was like a, an ideal customer profile to be developed there. But additionally, to start getting the sales motion together. Right. Start. Start. You know, picking up the phone, making cold calls, actually trying to to generate some distribution for the product, and then eventually, you know, try and find a repeatable, scalable go to market motion. And that's exactly what I did. So, you know, I ended up selling to some of the largest financial institutions in the world, and also to uh, to some startups. And that's kind of where it all started.
1: Well, I'm interested in disruption and how Web3 and DeFi disrupts conventional traditional finance. You worked at Morgan Stanley, obviously one of the biggest financial investment firms in the world. How do you think they're thinking through and positioning against the potential inevitability of DeFi and Web3?
0: I mean, I think they're 100% thinking about it. And, And like I said, I think in the last year to two years, it's gone from, you know, maybe a bit of denial or dismissal to how do we figure out how to use this technology. And I think they they're going to, they have innovators dilemma, right? They're, they're going to stay in their lane. They're going to serve their customers how they know best. It probably looks like some kind of access through their wealth management business to Bitcoin, ETH, maybe um, some of the ETF or ETP products, that exists out there, or maybe it's getting access to funds through, you know, through their platform, external funds. But yeah, I, you know, I think they're absolutely thinking about how they're going to get involved in it. I think at this point they have no, they have no choice but to try and leverage the technology and, and try and capitalize on the trend and asset class as a whole.
1: Well, as somebody who has some background working at a startup that built AI modeling on regulation and legislative actions. How have you thought through the potential impact of regulation on the space? Is it a concern you have?
0: Yeah, I, I mean it's always a concern, right? You know, will regulators and legislators do, you know, what's right and and what's best for the industry and the developers and innovators? You know, that's always my fear. Right I think historically, um if we take web one and and you know as precedents, right, uh, I think legislators and regulators did the right thing in allowing innovation uh and developers to to build and let the technology play out. I'm just hoping that that is the case here, and that vested interests don't sway uh regulators and legislators into making you know short-sighted decisions.
1: How would you respond to somebody who hearing your answer and also kind of reading everything that's on Twitter and everything that's related to regulation of the space? How would you respond to somebody that says it doesn't really matter what regulators do? Pandora's box has been opened. there's enough traction, enough interest that regulation at this point's a, a moot point?
0: Yeah, I've definitely heard that argument, and you know, I think it's a bit naive. You know, I, I do, you know, the regulators are incredibly powerful and, you know, the U S dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. I think to say that like major U S regulation that's anti-crypto would have no impact on crypto is that's just not true. (laughs) You know, if the, if the regulator, sure. Like the regulators can't shut down Bitcoin, right? The, The government can't shut down Bitcoin. And I hope that's the case for many of the protocols that we're investing in in Web three. Right? Again, they they're anti fragile. Let's hope, right? When they're built at at scale and they're built properly. But you know, I, I do think like we have to have the the regulators on the right side here. They could present a meaningful headwind to growth and consumer adoption of of the technology.
1: So Craig, after you joined Reciprocal Ventures, you get to work. And at some point, I imagine you all came in contact with The Graph and made some decisions about that partnership. Can you take us back in time and tell us when the first time was you came into contact with The Graph and some of those initial thoughts?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think we first spoke with uh, Yaniv in the spring of 2018. Um, and it was kind of an interesting backstory. So we had a couple investments in you know web3 mostly in defi either defi protocols or or applications you know around the call it mid to late 2017 time frame and in talking to our portfolio companies we noticed this recurring theme this problem that kept coming up that we ended up referring to internally as like the read problem where they had this devops issue where they just couldn't Get data from the Ethereum blockchain fast enough to serve it up to their user interface. And it resulted in these apps and protocols transitioning dev resources away from building the actual application and protocol over to DevOps to make sure that their data parsing engine and their indexing engine for the Ethereum chain was keeping up with the chain and was serving data fast enough and saw this problem and started asking this question in all of our meetings with web three apps and protocols like how are you handling your devops what does your devops process look like what are you spending dev resources on in, in devops and it became very obvious that data indexing was a huge issue Everyone was focused on faster blockchains, the right side of the equation, right? WRIT, and speeding transaction throughput up, but no one was really focused on the reading problem, you know, just yet. It was all like bespoke homegrown solutions that lived inside applications and protocols themselves. So we wanted to find a solution to that. And I think, you know, at the time. You know, we started coming across a, a SaaS company here or there. Actually, a lot of the companies who actually who had the technology to solve this were doing analytics on the blockchain for you know asset fund flows, trying to predict when whales were moving assets onto exchanges to predict like you know how that would impact prices. So they're doing various analyses to predict price movements in crypto assets and. Coincidentally, they happen to have the best infrastructure for indexing at the time. <laughs> um, so we saw a lot of those analytics businesses didn't see something that was go, you know, pure play, really trying to, to target this area, except for maybe Infura, which at, at the time just you know, wasn't really being taken seriously as a you know, scalable business. It was kind of like this you know, small operation inside Consensus that just happened to be serving up a lot of users on the Ethereum chain. So yeah, so you know, I started scouring the universe for companies trying to solve this, and and came across Geneve and, and the Graph, and that's where we uh, that's where we we first met, and kind of knew it was a, a need going into the, the first conversation.
1: So after you have this initial aha moment with the Graph and the solution it's providing. You, I guess, formalize what a partnership. How, how would you describe for listeners what that partnership is today?
0: It's changed quite a bit over time. You know, I think when I think when we first invested in in the graph, you know, it was just a couple couple people, <laughs> maybe five people, and you know, a lot of the conversation was around very high level, like theoretical concepts, like you know, the network economics, the token economic design, and just like playing with different models you know try and figure out where we could draw inspiration from and you know what the design might look like at token launch a lot of thinking around that now you know fast forward 4 years or so we're we're helping them kind of professionalize on certain levels you know i think one of the amazing things that's that's blown me away about the graph is is their ability to generate a, a grassroots developer flywheel or network effect I mean, it's absolutely wild the amount of traction they've gotten in terms of queries and subgraphs and number of developers. It's astounding. Now, I think the next step in the equation right, to really see, see the vision through is to make sure that everything's transitioning over to the decentralized network and make sure that the participants on the decentralized network are paying for the service and those cash flows are, are coming through to the indexers. So, you know, in my mind, right, that's a very straightforward problem. That's a go-to-market and monetization problem. So it kind of comes down to, you know, that go-to-market motion and uh and pricing. Obviously, pricing can't be unilaterally decided or altered within the network. It's a it's a, you know, it's a market equation that that has to kind of be decided and settled once the market finds equilibrium. But on the go-to-market side, that's something we can control right there are, there are playbooks out there for you know as much as the graph is not software as a service and it is not a centralized service in in any way on the decentralized network there are playbooks that we can draw inspiration from in order to transition to the decentralized network and make sure uptake and adoption you know play out the way we want it to and the graph has like a, an incredibly unique problem in web3 where you know the traction's already there it's actually an upsell problem. It's not a customer acquisition problem. The customers are already there, right? You know, I think there's 30 something thousand subgraphs on the hosted service, right? So when you have a, a network of customers that size, it's really about customer segmentation and coming up with a process to facilitate that upsell and transition super efficiently and making sure that you're optimizing for the right things in the go-to-market process.
1: So when you say go-to-market and upsell, you're obviously talking about some of these subgraphs currently being hosted on the hosted service, migrating over to the decentralized service. But you hit on an important element here, which is this market adoption, right? There is a lot of people already in this space reliant upon the graph. In addition to that, what else do you think uniquely positions the graph to succeed
0: in Web3? I mean, it's a great question. I think it's it's some of the value propositions that I alluded to earlier in our conversation, right? It's built with Web3 principles in mind, right? So it's anti-fragile. It avoids platform risk, doesn't have downtime. You know, I think developers appreciate those three things alone. But additionally, because it's built in this world where everything is constructed on open databases, we have this new feature of data composability built into the graph, right? where if, de- if the graph becomes a universal data layer for Web3 that transcends any one blockchain, that means that any net new developer to, to Web3 can come in and pick a subgraph and develop right away. Pick another subgraph. They don't have to go down to the smart contract logic just to get the data, right? They don't have to go into the, the layer one themselves and, and start chiseling away at the data set to figure out what data they need and don't need. It's all there in this data layer for them to, to leverage in their application.
1: And I suppose this is why you recently tweeted from your own Twitter account, That we believe Graph Protocol is mission critical infrastructure for the build out of Web3.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think, you know, fast forward five years, and the Graph is going to be a de facto component of every application's Web3 technology stack. Hi conversation with the grtiq podcast has been helpful to you and please consider supporting future episodes by becoming a subscriber visit grtiq.com slash podcast for more information that's grtiq.com slash podcast grtiq podcast thanks for listening
1: Craig in addition to the partnership you just described I'd be curious to know do you or anybody at Reciprocal Ventures participate within the graph ecosystem in other ways in the terms of being you know maybe an indexer or a curator or a delegator
0: Yeah uh, we do actually uh, and that's that's a really big part of our value proposition you know as a, as a firm I think I might have mentioned that you know over the last 5 years we've really tried to Really tried to engineer our value adds based on feedback from our portfolio companies. The graph, you know, back in 2018, was one of our first Web3 protocols in the portfolio, and a big part of the relationship that we built with the graph uh, was based on us running infrastructure actively in the network. Um, and we find that pretty much every protocol in that Web3 bucket wants the same thing. So that's something that we do. We actively run a top 10 indexer. In the graph network, you know we also delegate, not necessarily to our own indexer, but to other indexers in the network just to help decentralize the stake and make sure that it's not all concentrated on, on one indexer. And then from a personal perspective, I, I have dabbled in some curation work over uh, you know when, when curation first launched, but I found that I was, uh, you know, maybe taking too much time away from my day job researching, uh, researching subgraphs, So now I, now I delegate, you know, my own, my own stake and it it sits there and I, and I don't touch it, but yeah, we do run an indexer ourselves and, uh, we also delegate.
1: And what's the name of that indexer?
0: Um, it's called figment prime two, and I'd be happy to link to it in the show notes as well, if that's helpful.
1: Craig on January 21st, you created a Twitter thread. It was 24 posts long. So this really great thread on the graph. And you take readers through some of the things you've talked about today about originally coming across the read problem. In addition to that, you talk about how important the graph is for Web three and some of the other elements that we've touched on here. I'd just be curious. You know, I read through it; I loved it. Why did you post that thread?
0: Well, you know, it's funny having worked with the the graph and and you know full full disclosure, full transparency. We are investors in in the graph, and we still we still hold and own GRT. You know but we've we've been investors in the graph for years, and I've written about the graph at length for for our investors for our internal memos and and I kind of had this draft of uh internal memo that I shaped up for you know external distribution in my drafts folder for you know the better part of the last year and over that time, right like threads have become more popular, I think it's been just just. Way better to to have these like concise, you know, tight forms of communication. So I I did my best to try and distill, you know, this like 10 page blog post that I had written down into, you know, 24 tweets in a thread. Uh, just to share, you know, a little bit about the the grand vision that, you know, I think we see possible for the graph, why we made our initial investment, why we continue to be supportive. And then also, you know, a little bit about how the graph works and and why it's so novel you know and why it's why it's different from web2 companies that are that are trying to deliver what they consider to be a comparable service
1: after having written so much about the graph and studied uh, a lot about the protocol the ecosystem and, and the core dev partnerships what is it then that most excites you or makes you most optimistic about the future of the graph
0: i think it's it's the the universal applicability of the graph, you know so often you look at a company and it has this market that it's going after, and it's you know very segmented to a, a specific persona, a specific customer profile, and you know by the time you whittle down the number of people or the number of businesses that it could be used by, you know you end up with maybe a billion two billion dollar market, something like that, and that's pretty standard when you're you know when you're going after a, a venture business, a, a venture investable opportunity you know, with the graph, I think it's just orders of magnitude larger than that. It really does have the potential to become this universal data layer above every layer one that ends up being you know, heavily utilized. And, and you know, when you put it in that context, I, you know, I mean, I just think there's, there's an incredible long-term opportunity for the vision of the graph.
1: So I want to ask you a question about this incredible perspective you have uh, by virtue of your role at Reciprocal Ventures. And and I really appreciate you kind of taking us through your perspective and opinions about the graph. What else, maybe at the macro level, are you watching or excited about in the Web3 crypto space more, more generally or broadly?
0: Yeah. So just to reiterate, um, you know, we, look, we kind of look at three core investment theses. We, you know, we invest in DeFi primitives, chain agnostic Web3 protocols, which is where we bucket the graph. And then we look at the application layer, and we get really excited about any application that has unique features or capabilities that are enabled by Web three. So you couldn't necessarily get those things in Web two, right? Those are kind of the three areas that we're we're constantly monitoring. I tend to personally, we have a you know a team of a couple people now. We have Ali, uh, we have David, who are kind of have their own specialties. I tend to to love that Web three bucket. Um, and I do a lot of research and, and a lot of uh, meetings there right now, I'm thinking about the question of how far up the stack does decentralization go? and do we have a completely decentralized web 3 stack from you know front end all the way down to the layer one and it's a you know it's a question i've been I've been asking myself for five years since I got into the space and I still don't have a perfect answer. But I do know that a lot of these protocols are progressively decentralizing over time like the graph. And I and I think as token economic and incentive models are refined, it seems like it's becoming more possible to have a fully decentralized web3 stack. So, I'm thinking about certain kind of next order layers in the in the web3 stack like front end hosting, like Decentralized content delivery. You know, when I talk to applications that have the most users in crypto, those are kind of two of the things that that are top of mind for them. You know, we saw the front-end attack that happened with with Badger Dow. And uh, you know, I think traditionally we haven't had very content-rich user experiences in web three, you know, not a lot of video yet, uh, not a lot of you know moving imagery or uh, sharing but that's coming right it's going to happen like we recently invested in in ceramic you know to enable more flexible data streams and and you know file sharing experiences in applications and you know i think that's going to open up the floodgates of you know the types of applications are built and that content eventually will hit constraints in terms of serving that up to user interfaces in certain geographies around the world it'll it'll have to be faster or developers will have to rely on you know Cloudflare and Akamai so you know traditional web 2 players in, in that market to distribute content more effectively so you know those are two big things i'm personally thinking about uh, actively meeting with companies in in those two areas uh really want to want to make an investment In both of those categories.
1: One of the challenges of your role and maybe anybody else who's interested in Web3 and crypto is staying up to date on everything. There's so much change and the industry never sleeps. Do you have any hacks or rules of thumb that you follow to stay up to speed on things that might benefit listeners who are interested in doing the same?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's getting more difficult. (laughs) Um, I think my advice to anyone who's trying to, to get up the curve in crypto, I think crypto Twitter is the best resource in the world. like bar none. and, and you know when we hire new, new hires at Reciprocal who are you know, not on, either not on the crypto investment team or not on the investment team, but they you know want or need to know more about crypto, the first thing I, I tell them to do is go create a Twitter account, Get, follow you know a bunch of people, follow a bunch of influencers, and just just start getting involved in the conversation, or even just lurk right and lurk and learn <laughs> Uh not not the worst thing, right? But um but I it's the best it honestly is the best resource out there. And I think there are some great, you know, publishers of information as well, like the block, Masari, Decrypt, you know, all all you know high quality content that you can you know, generally trust. Blockworks is another one. And and they have they have a lot of podcasts, they have a lot of regular daily news as well to to get you into the information flow. The other thing I'd recommend, too, is getting into into discords of of good projects. And if you really want to learn how the technology works, that's probably the best place.
1: So, Craig, I have one more question for you before I let you go. And I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time. But if we go back and look at the last five years of your life, when you transitioned from conventional finance at Morgan Stanley, then to an entrepreneur startup environment, and now into the crypto space, as you look back, What's the most important lesson or insight that you've had that you think you could share with others as they try to navigate and maybe learn from the experience you've had over the last five years?
0: Man, that's such a good question. It's so difficult to sum up in one (laughs) cogent response. Uh, what I, you know, what I'll say is is be hungry, but also be patient. You know, and I and, and that's actually something that that I've more recently learned at reciprocal. And, you know, as I've helped, you know, cause right now I'm still a builder, right? But we're building a venture firm. It's, it's very different. You know, I mentioned feedback loops earlier. How when you're an entrepreneur, you have these like daily and weekly feedback loops. You know, obviously the growth trajectory happens across a very long term time horizon, but you have these constant feedback loops that help you iterate and do your job better in, in venture investing. The feedback loops are much longer. You know, it might be a couple of years before you really even know if you're doing your job well. And uh, that has really taught me patience, (laughs) patience that I definitely didn't have when I was an entrepreneur. So I think, um, so being insatiably curious is another just, you know, great skill to master. You learn one thing and you want to just keep pulling on that thread to learn the next five things about. That thing. I I think no matter what you're doing, whether you're a product manager, you know, customer success person or an investor, you know, that's just that's just always going to be be helpful in getting ahead and aggregating more knowledge. Especially important in a space like crypto where, you know, the universe of web three is expanding so quickly. And the amount of information that exists about web three is expanding so quickly. You know, I had the luxury of starting in Web3 in 2016, 2017 when they relative to today, there really wasn't that much going on. I, I remember reading a couple of white papers, right? And, you know, subscribing to CoinDesk. And I'm like, man, I got this. I'm like, I'm immediately more knowledgeable than like everyone in this corner of Manhattan, you know. <laughs> and now it's just, you know, there's so much information out there. Uh you kind of have to be you know, tenacious in, in your pursuit of knowledge to to keep up with it.
1: Well, Craig, I appreciate your time today and and for this great overview and introduction, not only of Reciprocal Ventures, but a lot of the things that you've observed in the graph. And I appreciate you taking the time to explain it all. If listeners want to learn more about you and some of the work you're doing at Reciprocal Ventures, what's the best way to do it?
0: I'd say Twitter is, is probably the best place to find me. Uh, just at Craig Burell, C-R-A-I-G-B-U-R-E-L.
1: This has been a production of the GRT IQ podcast. For more information, including detailed show notes, visit grtiq.com slash podcast. That's grtiq.com slash podcast. Project and helping build the community by subscribing and leaving a review. G R T IV Podcast.